Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, like Pastor Lee just read. It will also be projected up behind us if you'd like to follow along that way. If you came here and you don't have, um, we use the English Standard Version copy of the Bible. We believe that it's a good literal translation from the original Greek and Hebrew. If you don't own a copy of that, please take one home with you. That is our gift to you. So there is absolutely no topic that gets me more excited than talking about the grace of God. I am, I've been waiting for this series. I've known for six months now that we were going to be doing this series. And in this series, I've been waiting for one message in particular, and that is today's message on sola gratia by grace alone. I love grace. I try to live daily with an understanding that I am deeply, deeply in need of God's grace. I identify with the Apostle Paul so much when he says that he is the foremost of all sinners, but that he received grace so that in him as the foremost, God might demonstrate his perfect patience and mercy and grace to those who would believe. In planting a church, it was my greatest prayer. You have a lot of prayers. You end up having a lot of priorities. I wanted to see a church full of people who believed that they were called to be missionaries to their very zip code and be able to be the sent out people from God in their local context. But my greatest prayer was, still is, that we would be a community of grace, a community of people who live with an understanding of just how badly we're in need of God's grace, a community of people who live in constant place of gratitude for God's grace, a community of people who regularly seek to be reminded about God's grace working in and through their lives, a community of people who are just as eager to give grace as they are to receive grace a community of people who would ultimately be mobilized and fueled by the grace of God and be sent out as an army of grace junkies. And I just want you to know it certainly beats the alternative. People who are forgetful of how deeply they're in need of grace often are quick to take offenses and perceived injustices towards them. As Stott says, So many live their life defined by losses and crosses. People who lose a sense of gratitude for grace that has bestowed upon them often feel as if they're being slighted and they're not able to view the perceived injustice through the lenses of grace, often causing them to demand their way rather than to be able to just extend grace towards others. Communities that are low on grace 
are often communities that are growing in bitterness and resentment permeating through the community. A church that's low on grace is simultaneously struggling with understanding how much they are in need of grace, and therefore they're less likely to extend grace. And a church that's low on grace can be run by truth junkies, they can be run by fair junkies, but it's usually going to shrivel up and die because you're going to see grace begin to evacuate the premises leading to graceless environments. It makes me think of the scripture in 1 John 4.20 where John asks these people, how is it that you can claim to love a God who you don't see, yet you don't love your brother who you do see and rub elbows with on a daily basis? So I wonder if the same thing is true in how it relates to grace. How can people claim that they understand their need for grace and that they have freely received grace and that they are dependent, utterly dependent upon grace, yet absolutely refuse to give grace to the people who they do see and walk with and do life with on a regular basis? Well, I'm not the only one to make that connection in case you didn't know. Jesus made the connection in great detail in Matthew 18 as he shares this parable of this guy who received so much grace and mercy and was forgiven so, so much. But then he takes this forgiveness that he received for a massive debt that he never could have repaid on his own and he refuses to extend any grace or mercy to somebody whose offense was relatively small in comparison, demonstrating that the person never really grasped the grace that was given to them or the mercy that was shown to them to begin with. Well, as I've said in the previous two messages in this series in the introduction, each of these has a historical context, and the very fact that we need to use the term alone in each of these solas suggests that there was a time when people added to the concept, making it necessary to use the word alone to distinguish it from plus. Like when you're getting married and you do your marriage vows, what do you say to that person? You say, I am going to live with you and you alone for the rest of our life. You don't say you plus. You say you alone to distinguish from bringing whoever you want into that relationship. Well, it's the same thing when you have to use the word alone as a qualifier on faith or grace or scripture. The very fact that you've had to use it means that there were people who were adding to it. Historically, the church has added to grace in a variety of ways, making grace alone very necessary of a qualifier. They've made certain rituals or certain acts as methods of receiving grace, such as baptism or communion. They said that these things were able to actually bestow or give grace to us. They did not see grace as being sufficient in and of itself for our salvation, so they felt like they had to do certain things in order to add merit to be able to add it to the grace of God that was given to them to improve upon the grace of God. Grace was not enough to forgive us our sins, so instead they came up with this unbiblical doctrine called penance that is still permeating 
through the church today, making it so difficult to be able to understand the grace of repentance because people have confused the two and distorting grace in many people's minds. And the people that are in that system, once they have sinned, they have this unbiblical belief that God can't possibly want me to go and be in the scriptures or be in church with God's people. I have to be able to do enough in order to be contrite enough to be able to show that I'm penitent enough to be able to come back into God's presence, thus doing away with and undermining the doctrine of grace. And because of all of this, communities of faith that were supposed to be communities of grace, as Jesus was defined in John chapter 1, verse 14, that he was the fullness of grace and truth that came and embodied what it looks like to live a life of grace and truth and live amongst us. These communities of grace instead became communities of severity. And as distorted as any of this is, we wonder why people are all jacked up, both regards to the doctrines of grace and the communal outworking of grace. Is it any wonder that people need to take the time to articulate in grace alone as standing fully contrary to grace plus? And grace plus, we're going to see this morning, always results in grace minus. So, brothers and sisters, we have to get this one right. As Christians, grace is our calling card. I'm going to preach it hard today because this is the defining mark of our Christianity. Along with the self-atonement of God and the resurrection, grace is what sets Christianity apart from all systems. Other belief systems have a concept of sin. Other belief systems have a concept of death and heaven and hell and judgment. But Christianity is the gatekeeper when it comes to grace. And it's a deposit that's worth, regard, is, that's worth guarding. So this morning we're going to look at our need for grace, the path to grace, the impact of grace, our inheritance as a result of grace, becoming a people and community of grace, and the evangelistic power of grace in a graceless world. So I'm going to pray, and we are going to go ahead and dig in. Um, you guys don't have to keep messing with that back there. It's like wicked distracting, so uh, thank you. Um, Jesus, I just pray that as we look to your word about your marvelous grace, I just ask that you would do a grace awakening in our hearts, oh God. Please feed us and fuel us on your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking at Ephesians 2, it starts off by going over very clearly our need for grace. Look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. So the first three verses of chapter 2 start out with, well, 
really it's all bad news what Paul is giving you here in chapter 2 in the beginning. And, and Paul is pretty clear about your need for grace. And when I say your, I don't just mean collectively. I mean every single one of you here has come here this morning in need of the grace that Paul is talking about. And Paul wastes no time getting right after to inform you, you were dead. That's the way that he starts it off. I, I would say that we are left with a pretty big need after Paul asserts that one. He says very clearly, you were dead. Usually when somebody's body is failing, the doctors try and diagnose what they can in order to find the vitals, see what kinds of signs of life there are present before they declare somebody dead. Well, apart from Christ, Paul is saying, I already took your vitals you have no vitals. You're dead in the beginning of this chapter. And the pronouncement starts off before you can even look at what health would look like. It starts off with the acceptance of the pronouncement that you, apart from Christ, are dead. And the news actually gets worse from there before we get into anything better. He says, not only were you dead, but you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So we effectively are living in the very thing that killed us. We know what killed us, and then we have chosen that we are going to stay in the world of the thing that killed us. And he's saying that has actually become your lifestyle. So being dead in sin by nature and by choice, we're actively choosing rebellion against the only one that could possibly resuscitate. And not only are you walking in this, I want to make it very clear because this has become terminology, a colloquialism that people use. You did not stumble into these trespasses and sin. You walked into them. I rarely go very long without hearing somebody talk about, oh, I had a slip. You know, I fell in to this sin. I stumbled into this. Ephesians is saying that, no, dead you just walked headlong into that sin. Or like Psalm 1 says, you first chose to go and walk into it, and then you stood there and hung out for a little bit, and then you said, hey, let me take a seat. I like this. I kind of like the way this feels. This is appealing to the nature going on in me. And then he said that you followed the course of this world, which in case you haven't looked, or in case you have not turned on the news in the last couple of centuries, um, it, it's, it's not going well out there. It, it's not a happy story when you turn on the news. And it's ironic that most people would admit that they do not particularly like the course that this world is headed. Every single poll, and I looked up poll after poll for research for this message, every single poll literally says that people believe that the world is moving backwards from where it was just a couple of generations ago, and that they are not happy with the current trajectory that things are on. Yet people are still trapped living in the matrix... They are living according to this world that they don't even particularly say that they like. How messed up is that? You're trapped in this place of living according to something that you're not even finding the joy and the pleasure in living for. I, I don't know about you, but that type of environment sounds ripe for revival. 
You know, when I, when I share with you guys the necessity to leave here as missionaries to go and preach the gospel to a dying world, and that I really believe with all of my heart that the greatest revivals were not recorded in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 so that we could look back at them and be able to say, oh wow, how great God was 2,000 years ago, but our God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he could start a revival of more widespread epidemic of revival than we've ever seen in this world. This world is ripe for it. Ephesians says that the people out there are living according to the principles of this world, and the people themselves are admitting that they don't even really like the world that they're living in accordance to. So it sounds to me that people just might be hungry for a change, and how will they know unless we're sent? How will they hear unless we tell them? Paul says in Romans chapter 10. How can we know that the course of this world is flaming out in front of our very eyes, yet continue to remain silent about these things? God has given you the answer. He's, you hold this treasure in earthen vessels as you leave this place. And then he says that you followed the prince of the power of the air. In case you're not sure what that means, it's not good. The prince of the power of the air is, is another name for Satan. So it's saying that there is a spirit that's leading you, but it is a contrary spirit other than the spirit of God. Then he goes on to talk about how he had this general bent towards disobedience. And man, if God is really working on your heart, if you're sitting here this morning, whoever you are, and God is working on your heart, I don't need to convince you that you have a general bent toward disobedience. I remember the first time I read Romans chapter 7, and it's talking about this battle that Paul has going inside of him. And he's saying, why is it that the things that I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing? Why is it the things that I don't end up wanting to do, that's what I do, the things I want to do I don't end up doing, why do I have this war raging within me? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? I remember the first time reading that and just thinking, wow, do I understand and identify with this passage. And I read it all these years later, and it's not just the big sins that God saved me out of when he first grabbed a hold of me and saying, why did I continue to do those things? Why did I continue to get in trouble with the law? Why did I continue to make a mess of my life? Even all these years later, when I end up judging somebody, or there's gossip that comes out of my mouth, or I end up acting in an unbecoming way, or I just end up getting frustrated, or any of the things that I still struggle with this day, I end up saying, why is it? I know that I don't want this, but why is it that the very thing that I want, I end up not doing, and the very thing that I wish I could stop, I end up returning to way too often. I remember when I was in living in Chicago going to Moody, I used to get to go up to Cook County um, Prison and and teach the inmates there how to work on their GED. And I didn't know that it was going to be a church service, and I never preached before. And this guy that was running the program said, uh, Eric's going to be preaching today. And that's all the warning that I had for the very first sermon that I've ever preached. So I opened up to Romans chapter 7, and I said, guys, I don't know if you can identify with this, but the things I want to do, I don't end up doing. And there's a bunch of stuff that I don't want to do, and I find that I'm continually in a hot mess doing those same things over and over. And I end up looking in my heart, and I get so frustrated. I'm just like, oh, you wretched man, who will set me free? And they were like tears coming down people's faces saying, I, I, yeah, I identify with that. Well, you know what? You know what it says right after that? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And you know what it says even after that? It says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of spirit and life. It said it's free from the law of sin and death. So got to just share, yes, I am walking accordance to this principle of general disobedience, but I don't have to. I don't like it. I don't want to be there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that not only am I not condemned for that anymore, but because of grace, I'm free. And then he says, we all lived according to the passions of the flesh. And Ravi Zacharias wrote a brilliant book. If you've, if you've never read it, it's called Sense and Sensuality. And what he does is he takes the writings of Oscar Wilde, who is known for hedonism. Hedonism is a belief that basically says if it feels good, do it, because that's going to lead you to the greatest pleasure in this life. He died miserable and insane, in case you want to know the end of the story. But he took Oscar Wilde's writings and he put them side by side with Jesus's writings. And he took their lives and put them side by side. And he showed how Oscar Wilde's constant hedonism just led him to a place where he couldn't even find pleasures in even the simplest things in this world. And it showed that Jesus Christ's theology of self-denial ended up resulting in joy forevermore even beyond this age and in this age as well. It's really a beautiful thing. If you think that he's going too far with it, you could actually read the writings of Oscar Wilde who wrote this book called Portrait of Dorian Gray. And it was kind of self-autobiographical. It's about this painting that all of the bad things that Oscar Wilde did, he still looked pristine on the outside, but the painting started to show the wear and the tear of it leading a hedonistic life. Yet he was feeling himself falling apart from the inside out, and he was feeling the weight of a life lived for hedonism apart from finding that joy in Christ. And he was wasting away from the inside out, and it got towards the point, I don't want to give you spoilers for the end of the book in case anyone wants to read it, but he would put the painting up in the attic, and every time he would see the painting, he would hate it, and he would grow to hate it more and more because it was a reflection of everything that he hated that was going on inside of himself. But he was able to see, people are seeing this outward beauty, but I'm able to see the wreckage that my hedonistic life has led me to. Paul is saying that we chose to go after that. And he says that we live to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. We are by nature children of wrath, meaning you were born in a place of rebellion. And for anyone that thinks that that was unfair, you then chose a place of rebellion right after birth. And that should leave you with two conclusions. Apart from Christ and his restraining mercy, each of us pretty much does what we want to. And all of us are majorly in need of God's grace. So then it gives the pathway to grace, and it starts off with a but God. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there is one possible solution to our problem. Our problem was utterly beyond repair. It could not just be, let me take a look, tinker under the hood, and try to troubleshoot this situation. It couldn't be I was heading in this direction, but I chose to go. And it had to be, but God. You were hell-bound on one direction, but God instead entered himself into the equation. We saw where we were headed apart from grace in the first three verses. And in case you forgot, he actually reminds you again in verse 5. 
he says, you were dead. So but God, and then there's the but you. The only thing that but you were able to do is you kept being dead. And it proves that it has to be grace alone. Dead people can't earn grace. Dead people can't take the grace that God had been giving to them and nudge it along a little bit. Dead people cannot take God's grace and add to it and therefore, therefore make God's grace more complete. I'm going to save most of the practical stuff for the end when I'm wrapping up. But this right here is one of my biggest passions in Christianity, so I have to at least mention it. And I want to... I just want to share from my heart. Um, how can people who understand that the only reason they've received grace is because of the terms but God be so exacting and so stifling towards other Christians? How can people who understand that the only thing that they contributed to grace was the sin that made it necessary be so severe with other people who live in need of grace. People who refuse to give grace so show that they espouse grace alone up here, but it's never traveled the 18 inches from their head into their hearts. People who espouse grace alone but fail to live gracious lives are one of the worst apologetics for the truth of the Christian gospel. The world's looking, and they're able to say, why would I ever want to be like that. I could be crusty, ungracious, and bitter on my own. I don't need organized religion to teach me how. I want to make this point last before moving on, but it's when you were least deserving of God's grace that God chose to lavish his grace upon you. Read the context of chapter 2, and then if you want, go back and read chapter 1. It was when you were in the midst of being dead, when you were in the midst of being a child of wrath, when you were in the midst of enmity against God, that God chose that you would be the vessel. He looked at all of that, and his conclusion was, you know what they need? They need grace. And I'm going to lavish it upon them. And I'm going to give them more grace. So how is it? That when somebody does something that we don't see as deserving of grace, our conclusion is those who did nothing to earn grace, the conclusion is, well, I'm going to cut them off from grace. The church needs to get this. If you're withholding grace in your heart towards someone because they didn't do enough to deserve it in your estimation, I'd like to say a couple of things to you. First of all, but God. Meaning the next time that you withhold grace from somebody that doesn't deserve it, I want you to practice this. The next time there's somebody in your life and you're like, yeah, but they just don't get what they did to me. How, how could they deserve grace? They didn't earn grace as well as I did. But God, just let those words come out of your mouth. But God, so that you remember what your contribution was to earning grace. And all of a sudden, I guarantee you, it will arrest you in the midst of your pharisaical, hypocritical direction and tell you, maybe I ought to be a vessel of grace rather than those people that Jesus took eight woes about in Matthew 23 to let them know how he felt about their ungraciousness. Remind yourself of what you earned. I seriously think that this, the church would be God's people's gracious people on this earth if we lived in full view of what you deserved in this life, what you earned in this life. And secondly, aren't you glad 
that God works off of grace alone rather than you having to had some sort of haphazard merit into the equation to earn his grace. And if that's the case, then how can you ever make somebody feel like they have to do something in order to merit grace from you? If you really live in view of the understanding of thank you, God, that even if I tried to do anything to merit this grace, all I would do is mess it up. How could you ever make somebody feel that they haven't done anything to merit grace from you? But I want to go still even deeper, because like I said, this is my favorite topic. I want to look at the impact of grace. Look at verses 5 through 10. It says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you guys see the kindness fireworks display that's happening in these verses? Do you see it? Like, do you see it? Somebody say yes. Thank you. Like he's saying, you, you deserve death. You deserved wrath. This is what you deserve. But I want to show you kindness. I want to lavish grace. I want to show you my goodness. I want to show you my mercy. And he just keeps on going and going. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that someone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even meaning that even the good works that you do are only because he gave you the grace in order to do them. So, a couple of things about the impact of grace. First, you were loved right in the middle of your trespasses and sins. So, you know what that beautifully does for us? Is if you're waiting to love somebody until they become more lovable, this shows you that God's pattern is loving you when you're at the least lovable, and then that's when he made you the lovable object of his affection. You were made alive together with Christ, according to verse 5. And you're not dead anymore. Christian, you're alive. You are alive. Do you ever just wrap your mind around those words? There is no death that can hold me any longer. I am indestructible. If you destroy this spacesuit, the only thing that happens is something better and i get to go be with jesus you are alive and raised up with him you were raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places according to verse six god is going to spend the rest of the ages showing you his immeasurable kindness and grace that are yours in christ jesus that's probably my favorite out of all of the promises that god can't wait to have his kids up there because he's got something he just wants to show off and he wants you to see it. And he wants you to see how splendid it is. And for all of eternity, he's going to be like, hey, come look at this. Come check this out. Isn't this awesome? Could you ever believe that this is so great? And it's just going to be plummeting the riches and the depths of his grace and his mercy. He also says that you've been eternally saved as a gift from God, independent of yourself. You've already, he's even created the good works for you to walk beforehand in and you want to hear something cool according to first corinthians 3 he's going to reward you for the gifts that he created so he saved you 
He gave you the ability to do the good works. He created the good works. And then he's going to reward you for the good works that he created beforehand. Oh, the grace of our God. And if you bring it back to chapter 1, just a couple more things about his grace. He predestined you. He chose you. He adopted you. He redeemed you. And he further lavished grace upon you. How amazing is grace? Amen? As a result of grace, this shows that it had to be grace alone. Just a couple of other passages about grace. I could have picked a million because cover to cover, it's a book about grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul's life was just falling apart, he talks about how Jesus appeared to all these apostles, and then he said, and then last of all, as to one unfit, he appeared to me, unfit to even be called an apostle because I was a violent aggressor and a persecutor of the church, but he appeared to me, and by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace turned me to not prove vain, but I labored more than any, but not I, but the grace of God with me. Man, is that, he's saying, I couldn't have been less deserving of this. And because of how undeserving I was, that's why God chose to make me a vessel and a trophy of his grace. Wow. You know, often a lot of people tell me that they just felt like shouting, like, hallelujah or amen. We're talking about grace here. So one of you people that say that you're going to do it, can you stop talking a big game and give a hallelujah? hallelujah? Thank you. I think you guys are just a bunch of game talkers, and you don't really mean it, to be honest. So if you can't get excited about this, I don't know, man. Romans 7 and 8. Through your best attempts, your best attempts to not do the things you don't want to do anymore and to stop doing that thing that you know you feel condemned every time you do it, your best attempts led you to a position of beating your chest and saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And Christ's best attempts said, child, you're free. And there's now no condemnation for that thing that you condemn yourself for because of grace. That's grace. And before I wrap up, I think it's important to understand a couple of things. First, he wants to be gracious to you. Uh, this, this was a hard one. for I didn't understand this until years into my faith. Romans 5 makes it very clear that we have been given peace with God through our justification through Christ. You know what that means? It's not just a ceasefire. It doesn't mean that God's just not mad at you anymore, but he's just sitting there with his abusive hand in his pocket, just waiting like, I saved them, but they just can't get it right. So the next time, that's not God. He not only loves you, he likes you. And you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He longs to be gracious to you. He even considers you his friend. God's grace goes so much deeper than we could ever wrap our minds around. And if you think you've wrapped your minds around it, it shows just how little you understand grace. As we don't have to be afraid of grace. I always feel like when I teach on grace that people feel like they have to qualify grace. Like, don't go out and sin now, just because we've talked about grace. As if grace is some way antithetical to God's holiness. If that was true... How could God be perfectly holy and perfectly gracious at the same time without either attribute violating the attribute of the other? You don't have to be afraid 
of grace. You can go as deep as you want to go into grace, and the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a deeper and more profound appreciation of grace, and you're going to see, man, I can keep digging, and I'm never going to reach China. Man, I'm never going to come out the other side of this grace thing. I'm just going to keep going and going and going because that's how awesome grace is. If grace alone, if we grasp that concept, we would understand that it has to be grace alone because as soon as you've added the grace, you've negated what grace is, and it's no longer grace. Like if somebody gives me a $50 gift card, and I'm like, wow, I've been wanting to go to Carabas anyway. Here's 50 bucks. They didn't give me a gift. I could have just spent my own money to go to Carabas to begin with. It's because they gave you the gift, and there's nothing that you could possibly do to give back for it is what makes it grace to begin with. So let me just hit this before I give a couple of application questions. There should be a deeply communal aspect to grace. God calls individual recipients of grace to be a community of grace. If you've passed out on me, I want you to just lock in like with more than you've ever locked in. I want you to hear this because grace is one of the greatest apologetics that the church of Jesus Christ could have to a world that's in need of grace. Grace calls individual recipients of grace to be a community of grace. If you've received grace, it should be demonstrated by giving grace. Grace should be one of the most recognizable characteristics of Christian community. People should be able to walk in and say, it smells like grace in here. And every time I meet one of those people, it's like, I'm a truther. And I'm not against truth. We just preach sola scriptura, sola fide. I'm one of those John the Baptist type prophets. I just think, where's the grace, man? You always hear of somebody being the truth watchdog. When's the last time you heard somebody say, I'm going to be the grace watchdog? I'm going to make sure that this shriveled up community doesn't turn into a graceless place that does not look like the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear people say it about truth all the time. There's books upon books upon books about how to correct somebody that's not in the truth. Yet we allow grace to seem as it's optional in so many places when Jesus is the full summation of grace and truth embodied, tabernacled according to John 1.14 that came to live here on earth. We should be regularly growing as grace, as individuals, and as community. The more grace that we receive, the more grace you should be willing to extend. If you've come here this morning, I told you this morning at the start of the sermon, I'm talking to every single one of you. If you've come here this morning and you've realized I am a pauper, deeply in need of grace, then you also biblically should realize that you are a person deeply in need of giving grace. The more grace we receive, the more we should be willing to extend it. We should not relate to God by grace alone, yet make people feel like they have to perform to stay in our good graces. People that have a theology of performance are usually very low on the scale of grace. The closer you grow to Jesus, both individually and communally, the more gracious we should become. If not, something is really broken along the way. If this church is growing I mean, I love the fact that I look out there, there's fewer and fewer empty seats each week. This place is packed. There's kids out there lining the hallways. If this place doesn't grow in grace and be a community where we could say the grace of God is here, we're wasting our time, and this is a social club. 
A community has to be a community of grace. People are deeply refreshed by grace. Check this out. This is so cool. Since people are deeply refreshed by grace, they're deeply refreshed by gracious people. Therefore, they're deeply refreshed by communities of gracious people. The flip side is also true. People are absolutely drained by gracelessness. So they're drained by graceless people, and by extension, what else is true? Graceless communities are one of the most draining things that are the most antithetical to the grace of the gospel possible on this earth. The church has to stand in the gap and take grace seriously. We are the gatekeepers of grace on earth. Think about that. Think about it. That's not rhetorical. Think about that. We are the gatekeepers of grace on this earth. So the church must be a hospital for the sick people, not a museum for stained glass saints. A hospital where people can come and get bandaged by the grace of God. So a couple of reflection questions. I'll start off pretty direct. Do people, do people find you refreshing or exhausting? Ask a few people, if you dare. Say, hey, I'm just examining the grace exuding from my life. Do I bring grace to a situation or further the exhaustion quotient? What is it about grace that makes it so refreshing to the soul? What is it about gracious people and gracious communities that make them so refreshing? Have you ever been under the heavy weight of the law and the heavy weight of the preaching of condemnation that you are not good enough and then be around somebody that just exudes grace and all of a sudden feel your soul let out a breath? <sighs> That's what Christian community is supposed to feel like, people. You will never grow closer to your Lord through condemnation. Condemnation only robs, kills, and destroys. It never pulls us closer to the gospel. Let's do a little heart test to see how you are with the concept of grace alone. When you sin, do you feel like you have to do some type of, type of penance to earn your way back into God's favor? Or do you see God's favor as something that couldn't have been earned, so therefore you couldn't have lost it to begin with because it was God's free gift that came through your justification? When somebody wrongs you, does the speed at which you give grace line up with the way that you've answered the previous questions? Or, I guess to say it simply, are you as quick to give grace as you are to receive grace? Does a deeper understanding of God's grace help us to fall more and deeply with our Savior? And how does understanding that it was God's grace alone and nothing that we could add make grace even more precious? One final thought, when the church is truly preaching grace alone. It's good news to a world who's badly in need of experiencing God's grace. God, thank you for grace alone, in Christ alone. May we be that community of grace. May grace resound out of this place. In Jesus' name, amen.